when I learned about the glass ceiling. And I was told by professors, and just generally speaking, that, you know, don't worry, that's a problem that past people have faced, and things are changing, and they'll get better. But now, you know, I'm here, I'm practicing, and even on the gender front, we haven't made the advancements that we need to make. And so for me, that reinforces the fact that we, there needs to be some serious advocacy on these issues. Otherwise, even on the issue of race, we're going to see the same stagnant growth or improvement as we've seen on the gender front. Welcome to Of Council. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. There are few in Canadian legal history who have reached the success, respect, and accomplishments in such a short period of time as Atricia Lewis. Within five years of her call date in 2013, Atricia is now among the top litigators in the country. In 2018, Atricia was awarded the prestigious Precedent Setter Award that recognizes remarkable lawyers within their first 10 years of call. Friends and colleagues describe her as a woman who, quote, knows what she wants and uses her intelligence, skills, and grit to get it. For her, that ultimate goal is to become Canada's top civil litigator. With the trajectory she is presently on, it will come as no surprise to anyone when she obtains that title. Building on her already accomplished career forged at McCarthy Tetro in Toronto, Patricia seeks election for the position of Law Society bencher. If elected, this may place her as the youngest bencher ever in this prestigious position, despite Convocation's reputation for being reserved for those who are generally old, white, and male. Patricia readily accepts the challenge to change this trend as a racialized woman dead set on increasing diversity and its benefits in the halls of Osgood Hall. Put another way, for many who hold her in awe, she is the future of our profession. You can learn more about Atricia's platform by visiting her venture page at www.atricialewis.com on this episode of Love Council. Before we start this interview with Atricia Lewis, I wanted to say thank you to our sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. Lexis Advanced Quick Law is now offering a new data visualization tool that will make it faster and easier for you to assess cases and determine relevance right from the search results page. You can watch their video to learn more on our podcast page featuring Atricia by visiting our website. So I always wanted to be a lawyer ever since I was at least seven years old. It's been a passion or a calling of mine, if you will. And it's something that I just knew from a young age and pursued steadfastly since. I can't really tell you what it is exactly that made me want to be a lawyer. I think it was just a sense of a pursuit of justice, but what does a seven-year-old know? Um, but it's something that I've always wanted, and I think it is a calling. So in 2013, um, you were called, and then in a mere five years, 2018, you were awarded the prestigious Precedent Setter Award, which recognizes young leaders, trendsetters, and remarkable lawyers. So despite your relatively recent call, you were able to carve out, from many people's point of view, tremendous success in the profession. 
What advice would you give to someone called in 2009 trying to replicate your trajectory? I would say to work hard, be very strategic, be strategic with who you're working for, the kinds of cases you're taking on, the kinds of opportunities that you're getting. And I would say, uh, most importantly, ask for help. There's lots of people out there. They might be unexpected people, people you may not think to uh, go to, but I found that if you ask for help, you'll get it. Uh, at least did you find that it's a little intimidating to reach out to people who are you know, these top litigators and asking them for advice? I mean, is that something you had to overcome or is it? For sure, it can be intimidating, but I found that when I walk into people's offices or send out an email, the reception has always been positive. And the more you do that, the more confident you feel that you'll get a good reception. And I really do think that this job ultimately is one of an apprenticeship and it's one of where you actually need other people to help you, to teach you, to support you, to succeed. And so to succeed, I think you need to reach out to other people. Do you feel that there was a particular point in your career that was um, perhaps a turning point, like whether it was a particular discussion with a, a mentor or a case, an article, or maybe just even an epiphany you had along the way? I think a big turning point in my career was when I wrote um, an article called A Personal Reflection on the Statement of Principles. And that was a very pivotal moment for me for a lot of reasons. One was I was terrified, actually, to write that article. Um, I wrote it because I was very frustrated and angry. I, I read an article written by a Mr. Kilpatrick out in London that I thought was really offensive and missed the mark. And so reading that article made me want to write my response. And my article on the Statement of Principles is actually a direct response to his and I was very nervous to write it because I thought it was a very kind of open, honest reflection on how I felt as a racialized woman in the profession. And I actually ran it by the CEO of McCarthy's because I was worried that the firm wouldn't be necessarily supportive of me putting out my very deep innermost thoughts about race. And the firm was very supportive. Dave Leonard even said, so Dave Leonard's the CEO of McCarthy's, he wrote to me when I asked him if it would be okay if I published the article. He said, not only would it be okay, I would be really honored if you identified yourself as a McCarthy's lawyer. And so that was a turning point for me because, A, I think I was able to speak my truth in a very raw and authentic way. And I think the reception I got after was really unexpected. I got hundreds of emails from lawyers and students and non-lawyers alike from across the country Re reaching out, um, identifying themselves as racialized or not, and saying, you know, the article really spoke to me, it really resonated with me, and I think it sparked at least um, at, at my firm and places where, I've, I, I be, where I am a, a discourse and a dialogue about really important issues to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that reception and, and the article also gave me a lot of confidence to push my advocacy forward on this issue. So what would you say, you know, obviously this isn't going to be the only issue that's going to arise and there's going to be people, uh, recent calls who are going to be in, in uh, similar shoes, wondering, you know, do I have the courage to post something like this, um, feeling trepidation about um, the impact it might have upon their career. What would you say to someone coming to you for that sort of advice uh, in similar circumstances? Yeah, and it's a, it's a tricky thing because... On one hand, it worked out really well for me, um, and so that would be my experience. And, and, and frankly, I think it's just true to who I am and my values, and so that's usually how I make decisions, mm -hmm. um, regardless of whether or not it's in the best interest of my career. 
But that said, like, I think it's a hard thing to do. And so, you know, I would be very encouraging of anyone who wanted to write something similar, but I would, you know, caution them, of course, that there might be risks associated with that. Mm -hmm. In the precedent article that I had referenced, one of the things that was highlighted that perhaps is attributable to your success and maybe even what we're talking about right now is your ability to know what you want. Do you agree with that statement? And if so, um, what advice do you have for lawyers who are perhaps indecisive or unsure or perhaps lack the courage to pursue um, these, these bigger goals? So I think it's, you know, if you know what you want, it's easier to be strategic because you've got a goal that you work towards. Um, so, for instance, you know, a, a discussion I have a lot with more junior lawyers at my firm is with respect to, you know, work-life balance. So when do they figure out when to say no to an assignment? When do they decline an opportunity? When do they take on X or take on Y? And I think you know, to make that decision, it really does matter what your end game is. So if your end game is to be a leading litigator, I think you'll make different decisions than if your end game is to be, you know, a lawyer that has a good steady job that you like. Um, and so I think without knowing your end game, it's hard to make decisions on all elements in, 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 a, in a very thoughtful way because you don't know where you're going. And with respect to not knowing, you know, if you don't know what your end game is, that's a, that's a harder one for me to answer because, like I said, mm-hmm. I've always wanted to be a lawyer. It's something that I've felt from a very young age, and so I've always been very steadfast in pursuing that goal. So outside of law, I mean, I usually ask people about their five-year goal, but you've had like a 25-year goal, it seems. Is this goal setting important to you to say, this is my one year, this is my five-year, this is where I want to be in 10 And if so, um, what advice would you give others to those benefits of setting that type of goal? Yeah, so I think goal setting is really important, especially from a skills-based perspective. Um, So one thing that I thought about when I was junior is I want to do X number of trials by X number of years. I want to cross-examine X number of witnesses. I want to do X number of discoveries. So think about what your practice is and think about what skills you actually need to advance successfully along that, along your chosen career path, and then break it up into more bite-sized pieces and, and then pursue that. That's the way that I've approached it, at least, and it's worked out relatively well for me in any event. What um, motivators do you see? I mean, you obviously had this goal from a very early age, but is there there's some sort of drive that um, or, or person or uh, just uh, insight that's kept you motivated and driving towards these lofty goals that you're now achieving? The truth is I really love my job. So I think it's really fun. To me, trials are the best, um, or trial or a hearing, being on your feet, cross-examining a witness or chiefing a witness, making game time calls. It's very adrenaline pumping. So that's what keeps me going. It's I know that I love it, and so that's why I, I keep working towards it. I think I know the answer to this, but uh, I ask it everyone. So I'll ask you, was there ever a crossroads in life where you thought, I won't be a lawyer? <laughs> no, there definitely wasn't. Um, I did a, a business degree in undergrad. And, and I remember in high school being frustrated that I needed to do an undergrad because I wanted to go straight to law school. But I needed an undergrad degree to get to law school. So I picked business um, because I figured if I didn't get into law school for whatever reason, at least I had a degree that I could use and have a, get a job quite easily. Um, so I did a BCom and I really loved it, um, met a lot of great people and my friends pursued careers in business as a result. And so there was a moment where I thought, oh, like maybe it'd be fun to do consulting or banking or whatever my friends were doing. But 
I didn't really think about that for longer than a split second. <laughs> what about your day-to-day? What does that look like? I mean, we, we go to law school and, and these types of firms like McCarthy and others are, are set on these pedestals, but it's kind of uh, murky as to what a lawyer there does on a day-to-day, particularly a litigator. So what, I mean, I know every day is different, but what does a, a typical day-to-day look like for you as a McCarthy t- a litigator? Yeah, so I like to get in really early. So I'm usually at the office between 7 and 7.30 in the morning. Um, That's when I do my thinking work um, or prep if I have to be in court that day or at a discovery. And then again, it depends from day to day. So I do a lot of discoveries. I'm in court or an administrative tribunal type um, space a lot. So those are exciting days. But I also like days where I'm in the office um, where I'm able to think, either draft factums or motion records or reporting letters. And then again, there's lots of client meetings peppered throughout or client calls peppered throughout my day. Mm-hmm. I know that you aspire towards um, becoming the best civil litigator in the country. I'm, I read that in an article. I think it might even have been the precedent one. And I can see um, from the trajectory that you're on, I, I would be surprised if that doesn't happen and soon. But why the best and what does best mean to you? Is it best relative to your call? Is it best relative to all litigators? Where do you see that uh, goal being in, let's say, 10 years from now? Yeah, so for me, it's I, I bring my A game to everything, so it's hard for me not to strive for just excellence. That's just how I've been hardwired. And when I say the best, I, you know, I, I like this job. I think I have fun cases. And as I build my practice, I want to keep getting fun cases. So I want to be the person that clients think about when they've got a tricky case, um, because those tend to be the most fun. And so that's what it, that's what I mean when I say I want to be the best. I want to be someone that people go to when they've got their but the firm litigation or very high stakes civil litigation. I have... Um some questions for you about challenges facing uh, women and racialized lawyers in law. Um, we could do an entire podcast series uh, on this issue, um, facing uh, racialized lawyers, women, and other marginalized groups in the profession. But if possible, I was hoping we could focus on a few examples, uh, major issues to bring awareness to the people um, facing this on a day-to-day. So a very powerful piece, and you've already mentioned it, that brought considerable attention um, uh, these issues um, was your initial piece, and that springboarded your um, career into many other positive things. There was also another article um, written by Hadia Rodrique, um, Black on Bay Street, and in it she discussed at length the challenges of lawyers of color um, fitting into firm culture and entrenched systems. I'm not sure if you read this article, but if you did, Um, I wonder if these sorts of issues had resonated with you in any way in your own experience on Bay Street. Yeah, so I have read that article, and I would describe it as a game changer, at least for me. Um, So I actually knew Hadia from back when I was in law school when she was at Faskins, um, because at the time she was the only black lawyer I knew or black female lawyer I knew on Bay Street. And so I'd reached out to her for advice when I was doing recruitment, and we had met for coffee. So I had known her for a while. Um, And the article really did shake Bay Street. Um, The CEO of my firm, uh, Dave Leonard, sent it out to all of the lawyers. It came out at a very strategic time, so right before the in-firm interview week um, that the Toronto law firms do. So it was very much a topic of discussion with uh, candidates who were recruiting. And I really do think it brought the issue of race, at least 
on Bay Street to the forefront. I think prior to that, at least my experience was that there was a lot of discussion and talk about gender and gender equality on Bay Street. And of course, we haven't achieved that yet. Um, but I definitely felt a little bit left behind because I thought that part of the discourse that was missing was on the topic of race. And so Hadia's article, you know, both that it was on the Globe, in the Globe and Mail, where all base, you know, the, the publication that all Bay Street lawyers read, um, the fact that the timing of it, and the fact that the CEO of my firm uh, sent it out, and I believe I'm sure other big firms uh, distributed it broadly. So it really did have a powerful impact on Bay Street. Have you seen any changes of significance uh, since that article has come out, like tangible differences that you've, you've noticed, whether it be policy changes or um, anything at all? I think there's been a lot more attention uh, being placed on these issues, more so than I've experienced before. There's now talk, there's discussions about it, there's planning. Um, I can't speak to all firms. I know that McCarthy's has implemented a number of changes since that article, um, we've, we've hired, um, a director of inclusion, um, Nikki Gershbane, who is an incredible woman and she's, you know, spearheading a lot of these initiatives. Um, one example of that is the firm had its inaugural diversity and inclusion awards. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the goal was, you know, we have these mentorship awards and we've had them for years and the benefit of the mentorship award is, you know, the firm's trying to foster a culture of mentorship. So we want to recognize the good mentors um, and celebrate them once a year. And so the idea being, let's celebrate the diversity and inclusion champions um, as a way of encouraging and fostering good positive behaviors that we want to see. So you've described some of these um, changes and, and perspectives that have perhaps changed a little bit. Is there one that stands out to you that you think had a, a a particularly um, impactful change on your firm and what you'd like to see put in place in other firms? I think it's an interesting time because lots of firms are experimenting with lots of different initiatives. So I think of Lenzer Slat, who's doing the name-blind um, interview process. That's not something McCarthy's has done yet. But I think right now, at least from what I see, is we're in the early days trying to figure out what are some important changes and advancements and tweaks that we can make to change the culture, advance diversity and inclusion. And so I think it'll be interesting to see what comes about of these different experiments to see what what actually has an impact and what will stick. You're now an established litigator in the firm. What would you say then to someone who has is coming into Bay Street and facing uh, some of the issues described by yourself and Hadia but perhaps doesn't feel confident enough to raise these issues? Is it something that they should be seeking mentorship on? Um, What advice would you give that young lawyer? For sure. So I think the first advice I would say is you're not alone. um, Lots of people feel that way. And then I would say, again, I guess consistent with what I said before, which is reach out to people for help. And that could be other racialized people if you're a racialized person um, or other women. But it can also be from allies that you may not necessarily typically expect. So uh, I recall a moment where I was feeling particularly alone and sad. um, And I reached out to a partner at McCarthy's, Jeff Hall, who's a great guy. And he is a white male partner. And he said, you know, what are things that I can do for you? Like, can I help you? Can I set up a lunch with Justice Tollick? Can I? And so you might find that you get support from unexpected places if you ask for help. 
Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that's uh, become quite a hot topic with the um, election that's coming up in the law society is the issue of the statement of principles. So first of all, do you see this as a live issue in the election or as more of a distraction from what really needs to be done? Is the matter settled or is it something that needs to be addressed within this campaign? I think it's a big distraction to a lot of important issues that we should be debating. Unfortunately, the stop sop slate has really taken up a lot of airtime. Um, I think they have some considerable resources behind them. I'm sure you've seen their recent email. I think every lawyer in the province got it about their slate of candidates. So do I think it's a distraction? Yes, absolutely. Is it something that we have to deal with head on? Also, yes, absolutely, unfortunately. Now, you um, had posted your statement of principles publicly, and as we know, it can be a private reflection. There's no requirement for any lawyer to post this publicly, but you did so. You took the opposite approach, and we saw a lot of um, very supportive comments on Twitter and elsewhere about your decision to do so. So what did you hope to accomplish by doing that, and, and do you feel you did so? Well, I think it was to give people an example. So I think, you know, initially there was uncertainty or or confusion about what is the statement of principles, what exactly does it look like, what am I supposed to be committing to or or promoting or saying. Mm -hmm. So my thinking was, here's my example as perhaps uh, something that would inspire other people. And then I also really, I tried hard to make mine, or at least the excerpt that you see, actionable. Because for me, the goal of the statement of principles is not not only for lawyers to reflect on their role and their duty, as lawyers, but also as an opportunity to think about what can they specifically do to advance diversity and inclusion. And so that's why I, I, I chose to excerpt the more action-oriented um, aspects of my statement. So speaking of action, what would you like to see in this profession in the next five years on issues surrounding EDI? I'd like to see more advancement. Uh, <laughs> And the reason why I'm a very vocal advocate on this issue is because I recall my days in high school and undergrad when I learned about the glass ceiling and concepts like that. And I was told by professors and just generally speaking that, you know, don't worry, that's a problem that past people have faced and things are changing and they'll get better. But now, you know, I'm here, I'm practicing, and even on the gender front, we haven't made the advancements that we need to make. And so for me, that reinforces the fact that there needs to be some serious advocacy on these issues. Otherwise, even on the issue of race, we're going to see the same stagnant growth or improvement as we've seen on the gender front. The challenges report that the Law Society put out has a great plan of action that I I endorse and support. Um, I think one of the more critical ones about in in that report is the, um, the measuring or the index um, because I truly think what's not measured isn't done. And so that would be the big focus and I think what we need to be thinking about as a profession. Well, maybe you've already answered this, but if you had the power to make one sweeping change now on EDI or a particular action measure, um, what might it be? I, I say this in the context because uh, one of the proposals I had read recently is suggesting that firms over a certain size actually post what action items they've done for the year as one of many possible examples. Is there one that, you know, if you had the power, you'd like to see every firm or lawyer try and implement? Uh, Yeah. So if I had omnibus power, (laughs) I would do two things. First, I would require all judges and court staff to take very comprehensive unconscious bias training. 
in my experience, I think that that's the next frontier. And I think firms are slowly getting on board with that and training their lawyers, but I don't know. There's a lot of opaqueness about what judges are being trained on if court staff and the, and the judiciary are, are keeping pace. And I think given that they're the, the fundamental decision makers, it's even more important that they have even more training um, on those issues. So that would be number one. And then number two would be, again, I think what's not measured isn't done. And so if I had omnibus powers, I would either enact legislation or something that requires people, um, or not requires people, but I think you know one of the common sort of responses I hear when we talk about tracking diversity metrics is, oh, privacy. You know, what about people, uh, employee privacy? And so to the extent that people think that we need this, which I don't think we do, some sort of carve out for in privacy legislation to ensure that initiatives to try and track and measure diversity aren't captured by any sort of concerns about privacy law. So speaking of the ability to influence and change, you are running for venture. Yes. Um, I just did some math, and it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're elected, will you be the youngest venture ever? I think so. Um, Again, people don't really publish their ages, so it's kind of hard to discern, but I think that probably is right. I think uh, the news, uh, there was news the first person to get elected under 40 was Jacqueline Horvat, and I'm not sure when she was elected, but... So let's talk about that. I want to I want to understand more about, um, first of all, what are your reasons for running? Um, why do you want to become a venture? So I ran because, first of all, there aren't any current ventures under 10 years of call or under 15 years of call. And when you think about the composition of lawyers, 40% of Ontario lawyers are under 15 years of call. And when you think about convocation and, and they make decisions that impact the entire profession, including those 40%. It's, it's remarkable that there isn't representation. I also think, you know, people have preconceived notions of what a venture, you know, looks like or should look like or, or is that I want to challenge. And, and candidly, I, I, I ran because I was encouraged by a lot of incredible women in law, um, like Erin Durant or Brianna Needham or Renata Austin, who are all very alive on Twitter, Pam Hrick, who really pushed me to run. And I think, you know, there's a lot of literature and stats that say women need encouragement to run. So I think, if I'm being honest, that had an influence on me as well. What are some of the um, issues that you would like to champion during your term as a venture? So I've got three uh, pillars to my platform. Uh, Number one is inclusion, which is true to who I am and my values. So, you know, unfortunately, I, I had wanted to advocate for the implementation of the challenges report plus plus, but mm-hmm. I, I worry that we're now in a holding pattern with respect to recommendation number one, which is the statement of principles. Um, so that's a huge focus of mine is advancing the inclusion plan put in place by convocation. I think there needs to be some governance reform. If you conceive of convocation as the board of directors, which is how I conceive of it, of the law society, you know, renewal is one of the most fundamental tenets to good governance, diversity of perspectives and renewal. And so I think there needs to be additional government governance reform, including things like reduced term limits from 12 years to eight to ensure more renewal. And, and even things like perhaps, you know, the, the very fact that there hasn't been a venture under 10 years or under 15 years of call suggests that there needs to be a dedicated 
venture seat for that, especially because other provinces have that kind of a system. So I think there needs to be governance reform to ensure diversity of perspectives. Um, and then the third thing is access. Um, and, and that to me is twofold. So it's access to justice and access, and I think it starts with access to the profession. So again, I think a perspective that that needs to be championed by a younger call is the changing reality of what it means to be a junior lawyer. Tuition's increasing. U of T now is $40,000 a year, plus, you know, the cost of living in Toronto if you go to U of T, plus, you know, you know, depending wherever you are, it's very expensive. Students are taking on a lot of debt to be able to actually become a lawyer. And that combined with concerns about licensing fees, the timing of the requirements to pay the licensing fees all make it really difficult to be a junior lawyer. And so I think that that perspective needs to be considered. Um, I think there needs to be greater dialogue with law schools about, about that. Um, because ultimately, if there are barriers to entering the profession, and those are on metrics that I don't think are fair, like income, then we're not necessarily having a bar that represents Canadian society, and I think that's problematic. And I also think it impacts the decisions that lawyers make with respect to how they practice, Um, you know, the types of jobs they take, their willingness to, you know, work for legal aid, et cetera. So I think that those, that perspective and the, the reality of a junior lawyer needs to be brought to convocation. And people can learn more about your platform. I think it's atricialewis.com. That's right. That's easy to remember. It's very easy. atricialewis.com. You can read all about your venture platform, which goes into greater detail about all these issues. So I'd encourage everyone to visit that. And I would encourage everyone to listen to the special of counsel venture series, a short uh, platform that you're going to do for us very shortly, right? Yes. Okay, great. Um, So, uh, Atricia, I want to talk to you about advocacy because you are an accomplished litigator and I'm sure that you've learned many lessons along the way. Uh, So a question I ask a lot of our guests is, if you had an inscription on your desk to read as a key piece of advice or something to jot on your notebook or iPad uh, before you make submissions, what do you think it might be? So my, I guess my inscription on my desk is, it was a lesson that came from um, a former partner at McCarthy's, Andy Redden, and it was, nothing bad ever happens, everything can be fixed, except for a missed limitations period. <laughs> and I, I actually find that I repeat those two lines over and over and over to myself um, on a regular basis. And it it really does, I think, remind you that it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to need to fix something. Um, and, it, and it helps give you the confidence to make decisions because ultimately that's what you need to do in this job. Um, and so that, that's my, my words to live by. What about advice that you hear people give you over and over, perhaps even from law school, cliches that you think is you know, over the years you've come to realize is terrible advice? Yeah, so two. One, and I guess they're related, uh, the first is keep your head down, and the second is wait your turn. And I completely disagree with both. I think the time is now to take charge of your career, do the things you want to do. Um, obviously, it's really important to work hard, and that's not what I'm saying. Um, you know, experience does matter for certain things. But I think one of the cultures in this profession, which I think is part of the reason why you don't see younger calls, is at, at convocation, is this kind of ethos around 
You know, your year of call matters. The more senior you are, it matters. And I would challenge that, you know. And I think I think lawyers um, do themselves a disservice by listening to that advice, which is repeated oftentimes. Yeah, I would certainly echo that advice because uh, in my experience, some of the most amazing litigators are, are, are well below what one would expect as far as their year of call. Is there a ritual or thing that you can't go to court without, whether it's a particular breakfast or a song? When you want to be on your litigation A game, what do you need to do? Uh, so for me, it's definitely listening to some music, some pump-up music. It varies depending on, you know, the year. Um, but I like to listen to some Eminem sometimes, some Fetty Rap, maybe even Sia the Greatest. That's that's part of the, the, mm-hmm. the list. So I, listening to pump-up music for sure. What about um, coming down from litigation? You've just won a big case or lost. Maybe they're two very different answers, but what do you do to detox from the stress of litigation? Funnily enough, the answer is the same. It's usually grab a drink with (laughs) the people, the trial team or the team. Very seldomly do I litigate a case by myself. I usually have either someone more senior to me or someone more junior to me or both. And so part of my ritual is win or lose. You have a drink with your team and you do a bit of a Mm -hmm. post-mortem about the case, what you could have done better. And and you celebrate the good decisions that you made or the good outcome that you had if, if that's the case. Another question I ask, and, and this is related, um, you know, and, and you've already uh, touched upon this, is that, you know, with your, your maxim that everything can be fixed. But when you're dealing with litigation, as you know, um, hindsight's always twenty twenty. mistakes are made, um, or even just oversights or perhaps a different approach. How do you come to reconcile that when you look back on a case a year later and think, or even a week later and think, oh, I wish I had just called this expert or asked this question um, how do you reconcile that? So I think it's important not to dwell on things that you can't change. It's important to learn from the mistakes that you made. That's what's going to make you a better lawyer the next time. Again, usually if it's a mistake, you can fix it mm-hmm. <laughs> unless you're way past the time. <laughs> I think that's where a lot of creativity comes in. So if you didn't call an expert that you think you need to call, can you do it now and then seek leave to late file a report as an example? There's always a workaround if you think you really messed something up. What about your heroes? Um, you're now a hero to many uh, coming into the profession. I'm sure there's a lot of law students who really look up to you and hope that they can follow in your footsteps. But um, was there someone that really drove you and, and you admired coming into this? Yeah, there's there's definitely a few. Um, Sarit Batner at my firm who's a powerhouse female litigator and a great mentor to me, um, who's definitely been responsible for a lot of my training. Um, She's someone who I very much looked up to and admired while in law school and and then as I continue on in my career. And then other female racialized women who are killing it on Bay Street. Um, So that includes Sandra Barton, Arlene Huggins. I look up to them. They paved the way for me. What would you say to... First-year law student, Atricia Lewis, before getting into it, is there, is there some things that you wish you knew then uh, that you know now? You know what? I think I'm really happy with where I am right now. I think all the mistakes that I made were important and necessary to get me here, so I don't think I'd change anything. On a more personal um, line of questioning, what is uh, the day-to-day management of stress? We know that this is a very high-pressure job, particularly in litigation, what you deal with. Um, What do you do just to try and maintain that life balance? So to me, there are two critical things, sleep and the gym. 
So I try to sleep seven hours a night. Um, I, I actually notice a huge change in my mood and performance when I'm underslept. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm not, there's, there are nights where you can't sleep because of a trial, closing, or what have you. But for the most part, I try and sleep. And two is fitness. I try and stay fit. Um, going to the gym is, to me, the ultimate stress reliever. And I actually, I'm sure there's science behind it, but it definitely helps me with my thinking and my stress. Is there something that you're particularly proud of that you've accomplished during your career? I think it's a lot of little things. I'm, you know, very much proud of the fact that I've been this diversity and inclusion advocate. I'm very proud of the fact that I inspire other people behind me. I think that's really important. And that's something that I I drive a lot of pride from. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wrapping up then, I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask all of our remarkable Love Council guests. Uh, first one, if there was a Supreme Court of Canada case that you could reverse or tweak, can you think of one? Yes. And you're going to be surprised by my choice because it's a criminal case. All it's right. right in your wheelhouse. <laughs> well, it's a quasi-criminal. It's a criminal and immigration case. It's Feebles and the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. And it's a 2014 Supreme Court case where I think the majority erroneously denied refugee status for an individual seeking refugee protection because he had committed a minor crime in the United States and had served a sentence. And so the Supreme Court had said that then you are not entitled to refugee protection. And I think that that is, is offside our Canadian values about tolerance and, and frankly, our values about sentencing. When someone's completed the sentence, I don't think it's fair to require them to not, uh, or require them to return to their country where they have legitimate fear, which is why they're seeking refugee protection on the basis of, you know, the fact that they had a minor crime under their belt. Okay, last question. I ask this to everyone as well. So aside from vote for Atricia Lewis, what would be your primetime commercial to the nation on law? How, how might that look if you were trying to impress upon society uh, one thing that they should know about law or litigation or, or something that you consider a value that's perhaps um, unknown at this point in time? So this, I guess, would go back to sort of my personal lived experiences where a lot of times I, you know, people doubt whether or not I'm a lawyer just based on looking at me. And so I think my elevator speech would be lawyers come in all shapes, sizes, colors, and forms. And so don't doubt whether or not someone's a lawyer just based on how they look. All right, everyone. That was Atricia Lewis running for bencher and remarkable lawyer. Thank you very much for being on of counsel. Of course. Thank you.